This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is March 17th, 2022, and this is episode 281. I'm Strat Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have decisions, decisions, decisions. One blocks RT from Canada's airwaves, and another suggests the BC government screwed over a whiskey bar. There's another on privacy stuff. We didn't have time to read that one, so we'll just highlight it in the quick takes. And more. Thanks to everyone who contributes to the show every month or annually. You can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast. First off, we have to wrap up the greatest BC premier bracket. Voting has just closed or is actually closing in a couple minutes technically from when we're recording because I screwed up the timing on the Twitter poll because of daylight savings. But Yet the- another reason to get rid of it. Oh, we'll have more to say on that. But we had 186 votes, and right now, with 78.5% of those votes, that's 146. Dave Barrett is the leading champion for greatest premier. So unless there is a huge swing in the next minute and a half, as it were, WAC Bennett seems to have gone down as the second greatest, the runner-up. Sorry to David Mitchell. I think he did make a good case last week. Maybe Rod's was just more convincing, or maybe it's just the era where we have a more progressive listenership or just our listenership is biased. I think the demographics of the podcast audience skew a bit. I I do remember when we did a survey and yeah, it's probably a listenership that's a little more favorable to uh, Dave Barrett just on the outset. I personally would have liked to have seen uh, Bennett win. I I think the the physical build out of the province in such a way was just such a big legacy. It's hard to get away from that, but clearly the listeners disagreed on that. Like I'm personally a Barrett fan, but I think the contest is really about just how like BC as we know it today exists because of these two premiers more than anything else. What we've seen through this entire bracket is there were a lot of very forgettable premiers in the nonpartisan era, very corrupt uh, situations throughout that as we moved into the partisan era we had some forgettables between the liberals and the conservatives as well as some who left major legacies or did weird things like bought submarines to give to the federal government and then there were just a lot of racists there were so many racists so many and so you finally get to the post-war era and you get wac bennett govern the province for 20 years and make so many dramatic changes. And I reached out to, there was one other person I reached out to, and he said, I wouldn't speak to WAC Bennett, even though this person was a conservative, because they think his Indigenous legacy is pretty bad based on how he built those dams that now bear his name and so forth. So there is a bit of a history and a change in approach. One of the things that I think Rod said when he was defending Barrett is like, I think the way to maybe view it is Bennett brought BC to the 1950s, but then left it there. And it took a lot to get us to the 1950s. 
because we were a very uh, underdeveloped province in many ways prior to that. But then Dave Barrett did a lot of those things very quickly to modernize the province and modernize the way our government runs. So without the two of them kind of representing the two poles of BC politics, you don't have BC of today for better and worse. I think it was a fun exercise. It was worth doing. Yeah, it was interesting. Definitely learned a bit about some of those earlier premiers who I would not have otherwise. Yeah, like Robert Bevan, who almost gave Vancouver Island away. Let's move into our first main segment, RT No TV. The CRTC has officially banned TV channels RT and RT France from Canadian Airwaves. This is a decision by the Canadian Radio Telecommunications Commission. Their broadcasting decision 2022-68 put on the public record written out by their secretary general. They took submissions. They were directed by actually the cabinet under, I think it's section 15 order of the act. We're not going to get into the deep details of the CRTC act that allow the government to basically say, hey, review this thing. They have that power. So they did, they took interventions and they came to the conclusion that uh, it's not a good channel. It's not really, <laughs> it's not in the public benefit. Sh shockingly, Putin's... Uh propaganda network isn't uh, a public good? This interests me in many ways, because there is a freedom of expression angle. There was a seeming like rush to a predetermined conclusion here in many ways. And I was curious to really read this decision and dig into it a bit to see like how robust of an analysis did the CRTC do? Or was this kind of a pro forma decision? Because it also didn't matter by this point. Most cable channel carriers had already decided to stop carrying RT anyway, mostly on recommendation from the government. But there's also been a large societal push to punish Russia, mostly well-meaning, although sometimes hitting Russians themselves where they shouldn't. But we've talked about that in the past. And so I had to read this decision and see what it said. So... I'm not going to go through the regulatory framework sections or the process. I'm not a CRTC lawyer. I'm not even a lawyer. So those will link to it in the show notes. You can go, you can go to them. The CRTC had a number of interventions where they got submissions from different groups. Uh, Sasktel, Rogers, Shaw, Star Choice, and the ethnic media conglomeration all made submissions. Sasktel just said they don't distribute RT, and similarly, Shaw said they're not carrying them anymore. Uh, there was some more substantive submissions from the ethnic media conglomerate. A number of other Ukrainian and Eastern European groups submitted comments expressing their concerns and flagging a number of specific examples from RT that they were concerned about. Uh, the Canadian-Polish Congress also submitted that, quote, these are not news channels, but rather instruments of, of disinformation and influence operations. And in addition, there were a few other people who were worried about the anti-Semitism presented by specific people who have been on RT, like David Duke, Jared Taylor, and Richard Spencer. Yep. For those I, even with the very low opinion I hold RT in, I, I was a little surprised by that. David Duke, the former current, I don't know, he's 
one of the KKK guys and Richard Spencer, notable white supremacist. But yeah, others talked and gave the CRTC information about specific things they've done recently. And then a couple, a, few, a small number of interventions were actually made opposed to removing RT. These were, it sounded like a couple individuals who were concerned about censorship and the possibility of not having two sides of information. The most notable of these was a group called Vaccination Informatique, which sounds, as I read their submission, Quebec anti-vax group. Not a surprise. The RT's been pretty big into playing up to a lot of anti-vax stuff, so I could see why they would want their thing to keep going, but if anything, I think that probably makes the case against RT more than anything else. Yeah. And then it goes into the commission actually doing its analysis. It notes that non-Canadian services do not have a right to be distributed in Canada, and being listed at one point doesn't guarantee that. Uh, they go through some of the submissions around abuse of content and some of the other considerations that they were given. Ultimately, and I'll just read a little bit here from towards the end, with respect to freedom of expression and censorship concerns raised by certain interveners, the commission notes that Canadians will still be able to access the content on other platforms such as the internet, should they so choose. The commission is also gravely concerned by the promotion of hatred towards Ukrainian Canadians on Russian state broadcasters and programming, which seeks to undermine the democratic institutions within Canada, as well as promote hatred of Canada and its allies. Commission finds that the distribution in Canada of programming from a foreign country which seeks to undermine the sovereignty of another country, demean Canadians of a particular ethnic background, as well as undermine the democratic institutions within Canada, does not serve to safeguard, enrich, or strengthen the cultural, political, social, and economic fabric of Canada. The Commission also finds that such programming does not reflect Canadian attitudes, opinions, ideas, and values, nor does it serve the needs and interests of Canadians. In other words, it's not in the public benefit, and it's likely to expose Ukrainian Canadians to hatred. And those two mandates are where they draw their legislative authority to can it. Oh, that seems reasonable. I, I would have also been happy if they could have just canned it on the grounds of being a propaganda network for a hostile foreign power that has been waging an information war for years now against Canada and our allies. That sounds and, like it was in there. Yeah, it sounds like it was in there, but I don't know, if the the broadcast app doesn't have a specific thing just to knock it out on those grounds and have to go a little more round about it, it's probably something that should get added when the government gets around to updating it next, which they, they do believe they have committed to and was one of the things that got on the, the chopping block when they called the last election. It was also one of those realms where the liberals were accused of overreach in many different ways, so for different reasons, obviously. But I'll be interested to see what they do try. Overall, I like how this process came about, at least. It seems more robust than simply the ministerial, the minister deciding this media is banned. At least there is some accountable process. And this decision, for example, could be appealed for judicial review to the federal courts, I believe, and then could go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. But I was having a conversation in one more lawyer-focused discord I'm in. And the question arose there, who would actually bring the case? Because it's not clear if anyone actually has standing if all of the I owners and control... But if they're not in Canada, do they have the right? So if they're not like a registered corporation within Canada, if they're just a foreign company, 
they may not actually have standing. It's a question I don't know the answer to because it's one of those very technical legal ones, but it's possible. People outside of Canada sometimes can sue Canada, like for the right to vote, but a foreign company demanding the right to express itself in our country seems like it quite wouldn't quite trigger the charter protections in the same way that even a company within Canada would. So I, I was just thinking that if there's a not necessarily a charter case on this, but just if it's reviewable as a matter of statutory ability to, to send it to the course review, they probably would be able to just as their party in the decision. Yeah, I found it pretty funny that neither Russia Today nor RT France actually submitted anything or like pretty much no one defended them. Which like is amusing and no one really needs to be that, but our justice system is based on that kind of adversarial process where you do need often two sides to really balance the justice system. You don't show up, you don't get to have your case heard, and then you get blocked for being propaganda and racist. So there you go. The other story that kind of rose up in this context is that Canadian heritage is also under criticism for some of the money that went out through the periodical fund they have to support magazines and newspapers, because it had a few additional COVID top-ups that went out to a number of magazines that were struggling to keep afloat. Controversially, one of those magazines to receive $17,000 was one many Vancouverites and people across BC, I believe, will have seen given out freely Common Ground magazine. Are you familiar with this little upstart publication, Scott? I think I've uh, seen it around now and then. I can't think I've ever actually leafed through it. Oh, I think I I'm went through aware of it. I think I went through one and it was like a mix of every conspiracy you could think of all at the same time. It's just like crystals, anti-vax, big pharma's out to get you, there's a one world government. It's out there. I don't know how they've been through COVID, but I can pretty much imagine that they've probably not gone quite the moderate way. I think someone in my neighborhood was trying to give one out recently, and I just had to go, no, thank you, no. So the fact that they're getting $17,000 from the federal government raises a lot of eyebrows of going, is the federal government giving money to an organization that's promoting disinformation? Yeah, they have. And the CBC article notes that they've published stuff about ivermectin and false claims that the vaccines would cause cancer in children. So yeah, they were pushing out a bunch of COVID-19 misinformation and the government was funding them to do so. Well, at the same time, the same department was also working on tackling misinformation. So it's one of those, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, or the left hand doesn't know what the tinfoil hat hand's doing. I'll break this here. It's not even just uh, common ground. I know that the struggling publication Humanist Perspectives, which is a standalone organization, not 
connected to the BC Human Association that I work for, but they do have a history together. They've more split over time as the magazine has gone off, frankly, the deep end. Uh, they received $2,000 last year from this fund. And to give you a sense of where they've gotten to, the current magazine, the current issue from December 2021 has an article titled, COVID-19 vaccines offer better immunity than previous infections, says CDC. Really? Question mark? And that's the title of that article. And then there's a bunch of other things that are worried about mass migration, why we should, the Islamic slave trade, uh, and a bunch of other very problematic and terrible things. Yeah, I think the periodical fund could use some more robust safeguards. Once again, yeah, well, this was a go ahead. Sorry, Ron. Once again, it does raise those free expression questions because the government always needs to balance if it's going to be tackling things based on their content. How does it do so in a way that, you know, ensures there is still a robust discussion? But I think publishing straight up misinformation, like either of those magazines have been doing, I think we can cut them off. Yeah. And this was one of those problems that I think was raised back when the fund started going or the last time they made any changes to it. I'm not sure when the fund actually got started on there, but I think it was under the current government, was it not? The fund, there has been a magazine fund for quite a while from the federal government. The specific money being questioned was covid related that was put out through the fund yeah i think they had made some changes at some point earlier in the government on this anyway but yeah it was definitely one of those issues that was raised and it is a tough one because the government it's not great for the government to be deciding what doesn't get published you do want a generally viewpoint neutral government on these sorts of things but at the same time just giving money away to everyone with the newspaper, regardless of the content they publish, also isn't great, because then you're just helping flood the zone with a bunch of false information that just clouds everything. So I don't have a good solution, but it, it is, I don't know, I guess it's one of those things that brings out the inner libertarian in me that just gets a little uneasy when the government start, steps in and has these funding programs in general. No, yeah, I share that sense, and that's something like Jesse Brown on Canada Land will bring up all of the time. Like the way it's worked best in Canada, and this can be argued because it creates its own problems, is you have like arts funding or even the very way that they're planning to move forward with newspaper subsidies is to basically set up an industry council who then picks where the money goes. And the money from the federal government just goes to this council who is elected from their own membership. Now, the problem there is it tends to favor established figures. And so startups struggle to get funding from that. Like, we're a small podcast company, and to get money from some of these funds, I haven't figured out if we even could. And it seems like a difficult process because we're not as legit as even a like newsletter company and that's a challenge for it but at the same time i trust a panel of those experts a little bit better than just giving money out to anyone who comes hand in some ways and maybe there's a way to do that with magazines but it's complicated it raises a lot of questions and there's a lot of people much smarter than me thinking about this 
Clearly the system is broken, though. Let's move to our second segment, our second decision, Operation Malt Barley. The BC Supreme Court has slapped the wrist of the provincial government for how they stole the whiskey from Fett's Whiskey Kitchen on Commercial Drive back in 2018. You remember when we covered this story? Yeah, I remember when we uh, first talked about it. Yeah, back, back when it first happened and caused a pretty big splash at the time, if I recall. Yeah. Yeah, so just... And yeah, it was at the time it seemed like a pretty dumb thing. And it, yeah, maybe they technically ran afoul of the rules. Well, that's still in dispute as we will talk about, but they were dumb rules to begin with and, I don't know, having the liquor police come in and take a bunch of bottles didn't exactly seem like an ideal way to resolve it either. And they apparently couldn't even do that correctly. So... Going through this decision, which just came out this week, it runs through the history of the case. And so I'll go through it a bit quickly and, you know, flag some of the key points that I pulled out of this ruling. The raid itself was on January 18th, 2018. The, I don't know, the narcs from the BC Liquor and Cannabis Regulation Branch seized 242 bottles of premium Scottish whiskey worth $41,000. For those who had never been to FETS, what their model was, and I don't even know if they're still operating after this, but they, they would... They operated for a couple of years. I've not, admittedly not been down that way since the pandemic kicked off, but up until then, they were, yeah, still doing a, a decent trade. Yeah, so they would have these rare single batch, small or small batch single malt whiskeys imported directly from Scotland and they yeah, would specialty stuff you, yeah you, stuff you couldn't just go down to the BC liquor store and pick up and so it would generally not be labeled because it's such a small batch and they would have a whiskey bible of hundreds of different options that you could choose from based on whatever your palate was looking for that day and the prices would range from a very normal amount of money you could spend on a shot of whiskey to a very abnormal amount and it was very good if you liked whiskey. Now, the problem is to get whiskey or any liquor from out of province into BC, you're supposed to go through the BC Liquor, the Liquor Distribution Board, and buy it from them, and they're buying it from whoever internationally. FETs couldn't do that because these were such small batches, and so they were buying it off someone else who had imported it legally, but that buying it from them, that other importer, was an illegal move. Fets never hid that, but they also operated between 2013 and 2018 without issue. So their liquor gets seized on January 18th, 2018. On June 6, 2019, following the conclusion of a hearing, they were fined $3,000 for this, and they were not going to get their liquor back. Fets asked for a reconsideration that was dismissed on September 6th of 2019, and the liquor, quote, remains subject to forfeiture and eventual destruction. It sounds like the whiskey still exists and is still in a government warehouse somewhere, but they might destroy it, which sounds awful. What a waste. So the seizure arose from an, an investigation of FETs as well as three others. And this comes out from the ruling that this was an investigation with the code name Operation Malt Barley. Some bureaucrats have too much time on their hands. 
Yeah, it's not just a beer drink. Like, this has become a thing with just operation names that uh, annoys me. They're, they're n- you know, it used to be the case that you would have a name just picked out at random by a computer, and that would be the name. Because the whole point of having a code name for something is that it's not supposed to tell you what the thing is. It's supposed to be a code. Operation Market Garden was not about selling gardening items. And like that was fine. It worked great. I mean, the, the operation had its problems, but as an approach to it, and I don't know, I, th- I think we should go back to the traditional way of doing it rather than trying to make everything a message name. But it's funnier this way. Well, Is it though? We could argue. So, Branch inspectors show up on January 18th. They ask Miss Fergie, one of the owners, to produce receipts. She said she didn't have them. It had been purchased from a private outfit. They removed the bottles and put them in a truck that they'd rented specifically to put the bottles in that day. The inspectors, it turns out, didn't have a search warrant as there had been no application to obtain one. So they just showed up, asked, took the stuff. Following that, they issued a contravention notice on February 1st, alleging violations of the Liquor Control Licensing Act. Only on July 2nd, more than five months later, did the government finally issue a notice of enforcement action with the proposed penalty of $3,000. This state that the branch received information in December 2017 that Fetz was purchasing this whiskey from a licensed retail store contrary to the terms of its license, and then they decided to go on the 18th of January. But... Further details of the investigation were given and uncovered by FETS through the Freedom of Information Act, which said that on December 22nd, 2017, inspectors posing as customers were able to purchase whiskey at FETS. And by January 11th, the branch had received confirmation that the Liquor Distribution Board had never sold this to FETS. So basically, the inspectors who went in on the 18th knew that the FETS was breaking the law. So on November 11th, during the hearing process in 2018, FETS asks the branch for documents and notes and internal correspondence relating to the investigation. They want to prepare their defense for this hearing. The branch replies on November 21st, saying that all relevant documents have been disclosed and, quote, these are all the documents that will allow the licensee to know and understand the allegation that the branch has been made with respect to the alleged contravention. The branch's letter goes on to add that FETS had, quote, the option of making a request under the Freedom of Information channels. In other words, the government said to the business that they just took $41,000 of product from and was alleging had broken the law. We've given you all the information you should need to defend yourself. Anything else you can request under FOI. That seems pretty questionable. Like, is the whole point of disclosures that you disclose everything and it's up to the defense to figure out what's relevant or not to their ability to defend themselves? I mean, like, I mean, neither obviously of us are lawyers, but that does seem like a pretty fundamental part of... Yeah, like, some stuff's obviously, there, there may be privileged stuff or outside of scope or, or whatnot, and yeah, whatever. But if you can FOI a document you need in your defense, that's probably the sort of thing that should have been turned over at the start. So, in February 2019, FETS lawyers renew the request for documents and finally go through the FOI process and they get 12 pages of internal branch communications from which much of the content had been redacted. So, 
under disclosure, things are given without redactions, unless there's a very extreme circumstance. But the idea is you deserve the right to make a full defense. Here, the government said, no, we're not going to give them to you. Okay, you asked under the Freedom of Information Act, we're going to redact things that we deem sensitive. The judgment goes on to say there's a copy of a report to the general manager dated January 12, 2018, before the the raid, from which everything had been contained under the heading discussion has been removed. Other documents from which all substantive content was removed. Those redactions were not made by the branch with reference to its own disclosure obligations or to potential relevance in the hearing. They were made by the Office of Information and Privacy Commissioners. There's at least some defense there for the branch that they're not like doing it alone and the Freedom of Information Privacy Commissioner is involved, but it's still hard to make a full defense when you don't know everything. And that's what this case is really about. Did the defendants, did FETs deserve to know what the government had on them? Uh, unfortunately, FETs tried to argue that they should have a right to see these full documents during the hearings. And if they can't, then any evidence related to them should be thrown out. The hearing delegates rejected that, saying charter the charter arguments, things you were talking about, Scott, they just don't apply at that hearing because FETS is just a company that is subject to the License Act and the charter, psh, screw the charter. You don't have a right to sell alcohol, Scott. Ultimately, the... Supreme Court of BC disagrees, saying, I find that Fetz was entitled to fully argue the issue based on a complete evidentiary record, and the denial of full access to dis documents relating to the branch's investigation was a breach of procedural fairness. So, it's now remitted back to another hearing where Fetz will be allowed to actually read everything the government had about them, and the case will continue and be heard once more at that level. And that's where it ends for now. The whiskey is, Fett still wants it back. And I hope they get it, or at least that it doesn't get destroyed. But this is a pretty big embarrassment for the government, I think. Yeah, this is what the most high profile enforcement action by the, the liquor Probably since prohibition. I, yeah, that I can remember. And. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with the prohibition comment there. Like it, a lot of this stuff is dumb prohibition era holdovers that honestly we should probably significantly change. And it the liberals should have done it when they had the chance and when they did a big liquor review back in I think it was twenty thirteen. The NDP changed things up on this one as well and hasn't fundamentally altered that this part of the issue and so the, the underlying policy is bad and questionable and yeah if you can't get something through the the main branch it should be entirely reasonable to source it from an alternative place if it's not uh suppliable via the the litter distribution board and the investigator should be good on the law and following the rules and all that and it's just a like you said a major embarrassment all around yeah another part of this case that i didn't even really get into is how the court really looked at there's a lot more options available to the branch like it could have gone 
for some administrative actions that did not rise to a full-out raid seizing everything in the middle of business hours. They could have done a warn and an educate and warn kind of thing. Like it they just jumped to 11 on the haha we're going to screw over this small business. And I'm not going to stand up for small businesses because many I don't I think are like valorized unnecessarily, but maybe it's cuz this is one I like the idea of or just even they didn't, yeah, that's, they that's didn't nice do thing. anything specifically wrong. Like, they did something technically wrong, but it's not immoral. Yeah, there is not a good public policy argument why it should be the case that they shouldn't have been able to do that. And yeah, like they, they may have technically ran to follow the rules, but like I said, those were bad rules. I, I do wonder how much this actually ended up harming feds. I, I know with... In a week or two of it happening, uh, a bunch of friends and I ended up going there, go and support type thing. And they're, I did chat, they're still up and running now, even after the pandemic. They weather that okay. None of that takes away from the questionable decisions by the, the enforcement agencies here. But I, I do wonder if the publicity this has generated has generally been helpful to them. Yeah, it looks like they're still open. Their website is up. The last post on the front was in December from when they actually went to court, thinking they'd their, be vindicated. Their most recent social media post is a back from fe- late February stating that they uh, do not sell Russian vodka out there. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, go there for okay. vodka usually anyway. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 you go there for the good whiskey. But yeah, they're clearly up and running and responding to current events. Like in the past few years, there have been a couple, besides what you mentioned, a couple major updates to our liquor regulation, right? There was the legalization of cannabis, which was an overhaul, and it was given to the Liquor Control Board. That's why it's the Liquor and Cannabis Control Board now. And then through COVID, there were a number of opportunities for larger changes, but were ultimately like small tweaks, things like allowing, ensuring and being very clear that like parks could allow municipalities could allow drinking in parks should they choose and some of the tweaks to allow liquor delivery and some of these like effectively they all ended up being tweaks but even within the evolution of cannabis sales in this province there has been a push within bc to allow more craft distributors and that's where this kind of ties into like craft beer is obviously the more direct analogy but we don't have a large number of craft distilleries in BC and being able to bring them those craft distilleries from the world is a highlight we should hope to lift up and not punish. Yeah, I will also add the probably the most substantive change on there was pretty much almost a year ago the government's finally started allowing uh restaurant and hospitality places to buy at wholesale prices rather than retail prices which it, it, it's just insane that it took that long to change like they, they were charging the, uh, a restaurant the same for a case of beer as you or i would pay to to go buy one in a, a st- liquor store rather than the wholesale price like every other thing they buy would be so uh, that's good that the government's not gouging the the restaurant sector the way before they were before but yeah, it should not have taken until 2021 to get that changed. 
Indeed. So I think there's still the opportunity for the government to admit its mistakes here and make this right. I'd be shocked if they did. And instead, I suspect FETs will have to continue to fight for their right to drink and sell import whiskey. Good on them for fighting it this far. And wow, the government fucked this up. This is embarrassing. This is like worse than just raiding it. They weren't even raiding it well. Like going in without warrants and then refusing to follow basic procedural fairness. Yeah, it's a, it's a bad look for sure. Let's jump into quick takes. Do you want to lead us off by what Jean Charest is promising to do? Yeah, so this I think is probably the first significant policy announcement of the, the leadership race. Yeah. You mean Patrick Brown's going to end cancel culture didn't count? It wasn't even so much that. It was His thing was about how he was it bus drivers to display Merry Christmas on the buses or something. The exactly. war on Christmas will be over if Patrick Brown yeah, becomes re- Prime Minister. Really the thing you want to center in your March campaign launch. But yeah, anyway, Jean Charest, who has also launched the campaign and seems to be in and out of the news a bit, published a piece in The Line, which is somewhat interesting just because it feels very new media for a campaign that is anything but. But basically his piece was arguing for the need to uh, increase defense spending to the 2% target, increase the size of the forces to... 100,000, as well as a general commitment to do more with Arctic sovereignty and cyber security and cyber warfare, but th- those parts were a little vague. Nevertheless, that's probably more specific than 99% of defense discussions in the context of an election. He will also fix procurement. Yes, which very much needs to be fixed, but... Saying you want to fit procurement and actually fits in procurement, there's a pretty big gap between those two things. There's big gaps in all of this, right? You say it's a bit vague and like the idea, how are we going to increase personnel to 100,000? I don't know. I don't know many people who want to join the armed forces. And there are lots of, like, in terms of the labor market right now, there are lots of jobs looking for people to work them. There are lots of employers looking for employees. And the military, with especially the last few years of news, like the main thing he's missing out of here is how does he fix the cultural problems that have been the headlines for the last... All we talked about for the military for the last five years was procurement and sexual harassment. Neither of those inspire confidence. And he doesn't really offer solutions to either of those, and he doesn't even address one of those. Yeah, that was definitely a gap in there. N- nevertheless, it is interesting to, to actually see this being discussed because we're a country that pretty famously doesn't pay the amount of attention we should to issues of defense and security, and we're realizing all of a sudden right now that's actually a problem when the world doesn't uh, act as nicely as we would like it to. So this is interesting as one of the leading things to, to put out on that front. The, the, the 2% commitment is good and long overdue. It's 
mean, a sizable amount of money, but also not, not that much in the grand scheme of things, that, especially compared to what other countries are spending or have recently committed to spending on that. And yeah, our, a lot of our equipment is pretty old and needs replacing and needs to be updated to the modern defense realities. Good on him for committing to it, but there's definitely a lot of blank spaces to fill in on this, particularly with the Arctic as well. That is a complex and difficult region to both operate in and secure militarily, and how exactly you go about it is is not a small challenge and, and needs a, quite a bit of thought. And it would be nice to see, I don't know, at least something there, like the much-discussed Deepwater port that was a Harper policy that didn't really ended up getting fulfilled. Yeah, there's now a refueling station up there, but it's hardly a full port. What I'll be interested to see is if this actually differentiates Shere from any other conservative leadership candidate, because conservatives like the military is not really breaking ground. It's part of the brand. And we're at a point where the liberal defense minister, and I think even Christopher Freeland were, have been talking up the need to spend more or their desire to spend more on the military and to expect that in the upcoming budget. And yeah, they've been telegraphing that pretty clearly in the, over the last couple weeks on that, which is also good. As we're seeing, we're dealing with a pretty uncertain world where you do actually need militaries to defend and secure a country. And we're clearly not at a point where we were a military as capable as it should be or as well equipped as it should be. I think part of the telegraphing on this, as well as just responding to questions on what we're doing to assist Ukraine, uh, Defense Minister Anita Naden on Power and Politics earlier this week said that we're basically tapped out and exhausted on what we can actually send to Ukraine without compromising our own capabilities significantly. And we've provided them with a bunch of stuff. Sent up, as we talked about a couple of weeks back, a uh, hundred Carl Gustav uh, 84mm recoilless rifles to, and 2,000 rounds for that and 4,500 uh, M72 light anti-taint weapons, which is good, but that's not a huge amount in the grand scheme of things. And if that is the point where we're tapped out, that indicates we have some pretty significant equipment and supply problems that need addressing for sure. And those are pretty old systems too that aren't necessarily going to be effective against the most modern tanks and armored vehicles and I think indicate a need to, to upgrade to something more substantive whether it's a javelin or an N-Law or any of those systems but the fact that the defense minister is mentioning that I think is an indication that we may see such items in the upcoming budget or at least the precursor commitments to that normally defense ministers don't talk that way so it's notable in that respect well changing gears a bit there's no easy way i can think to segue this 
a bit of good news came about this week, even after we had to deal with daylight savings time over the last weekend, as the U.S. Senate unanimously, like the Republican, something had full bipartisan support, and it was to adopt permanent daylight time in the U.S. I'm not actually totally clear what the law would do. It would just allow all I am for sure certain about is it would allow Washington, Oregon, and California to go to permanent daylight time, which would allow BC to go to permanent daylight time. And by allow BC, it would mean it would finally give Oregon the justification because he could do it today. And that means that next year could be the end of changing clocks. Yeah, so this still has to pass the lower house in the states and get signed into law. I whether or not I pass the House, I think it's going to be the whole... Up- this is something I cannot for the life of me see Biden vetoing. But yeah, it's basically needed because under US law, states can't unilaterally change their timekeeping approaches, which does re- mean that Congress has to sign off on it. And well, this is a fairly significant step on that. It's good to see. But yeah, like you said, we, we could do it unilaterally ourselves. The only thing that's keeping us back is uh, Horgan doesn't want half the year there to be an hour jump in the time crossing the 49th parallel, which seems reasonable. Nevertheless, I'm happy because daylight savings time is terrible and an annoyance and causes a bunch of deaths the following day after it happens like heart attacks go up and motor vehicle accidents increase and it's just extra annoying as a parent i know now and i'm a big fan of daylight time by this week when i was able to go into my backyard with my child after daycare and there was still light yeah i i don't i get the whole i don't want people don't want to walk to school in the dark but we live in canada it's always dark so yeah we can't actually get more daylight out of this so that the it's the daylight. Pro- it's the Sunshine Protection Act, Scott. I, I if that's the brand and it takes to get this through, I, I will not complain about that. So it's it's not actually that. I just found this story in BuzzFeed News that I'll put in the show notes. Apparently, the passage of this bill shocked even the senators because this passed in the same way that the conversion therapy ban passed in Canada, where someone moved for unanimous consent. And enough people were caught off guard or not realizing it, that it just no one stood up and objected. Apparently, because he just has to be awful at everything, Senator Tom Cotton probably would have objected, but his staff never told him the vote was coming up. Do they not have an order paper to check this stuff? I don't know how it works. (laughs) But they got unanimous consent. No one objected. No one said anything. Senators were actually rather surprised that it was moving forward that fast. And that's why this kind of came out of nowhere and caught everyone off guard. And now it's so close. It's so close I can taste it. It will apply to next year because there's some desire to make sure that all of the things that have clocks in them that are currently hammer, you know, ham-fistedly programmed together to say, and then at this time of the year, skip an hour. And then at this time of the year, repeat an hour. Those will all have to be recoded. I don't think it'll be as bad as the whole Y2K. Yeah, probably not Y2K. Programming that, blitz, that, that took a lot of effort 
over a decade, I think, to fix all the coding issues with that. Not a computer programming person, so I don't know the ins and outs there. But I gather the last time there was a change, which, I don't know, was what, like 10 years ago, maybe more? Might have been a Bush administration era thing. Anyway, uh, whatever the last significant change was, and I think it was that they moved the, the date by a week or something, caused a lot of problems and took several weeks after it, I think, to sort all the bugs out. So, yeah, having an extra year and a bit to, to figure that stuff all out seems pretty reasonable because there's going to be a lot of codes that have to be updated. In any case, I'm excited. Good to see Good it. decision, yeah. One more change, fine. Or two more changes, I guess. Another decision that's come down, the BC Privacy Commissioner has ruled that BC Privacy Law applies to federal political parties. And that means that you have the right to know what information the federal parties have on you and what they're doing with it. If you're from BC. Yeah, if you live in BC. So you have a different law applying to you. The decision itself, I dug it up and it's quite long. It's 200 paragraphs and quite technical involving things like the paramountcy principle and interjurisdictional conflicts. I haven't read it. It may not hold or stand. I couldn't even say probably if I had read it, but I find it it is really interesting. And there is a chance that the major political parties might appeal this for judicial review and then it has to go through all the other layers of courts. This came about because several British Columbians basically went through the process and asked the parties what information they had. They refused. And then these individuals filed complaints with the privacy commissioner. BC does apply its privacy law to uh, provincial political parties, which is why this is somewhat analogous, but a groundbreaking decision. Well, this isn't the first time the BC Privacy Commission has indicated that they they're of the view that their laws apply to the federal parties, but I think it's the first kind of reinforcing decision on that. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see this. Like I said, I is reviewable and it would not surprise me if one or more of the parties challenge this but well, it seems like a good decision the parties have a tendency to write themselves out of a lot of the privacy rules the spam rules all that so it's nice that there's actually a means of uh incorporating those requirements to the the main parties and that's the minor ones too I don't think they have this big a data operation. You don't think the Communist Party of Canada knows something about you, Scott? And finally, BC has launched a review of the pandemic response. You can add your voice to the survey and the government can start to think about what did we do wrong and what can we do better, except it's only going to really look at how we operationalize it. Yeah, so the, I think, big question that a lot of people have regarding this last couple of years and how the government responded to it was the actual policy decisions they have made. Once things rolled out, they more or less worked. Yeah, there were some pretty big screw-ups and I assume like pretty big strips, but there are definitely some screw-ups. Remember the bingo card? The, like, how, how are you, co like, the cope with the pandemic bingo card? That was, that was a mess. But... Yeah, the review... The is focused on the operational yeah, response. Yeah, the operational so. response. Questions like, should the government have instituted mask mandates before they did? Because 
I don't know if you recall, but up till what was it, August of 2021, might have even been fall. Sorry, August of 2020 or fall of 2020. So no, it was October 20. I think it was October 2020. The government's position and the public health officer's position was that mask mandates were actually bad and should not be instituted at all. Dr. Henry put out like a, was it an op-ed in a couple publications basically arguing against mask mandates a week before the policy changed. And, you know, that seems like the sort of thing that should probably get a close look at the decision-making process around that. Same thing I think actually happened with vaccine passports and, and all that. And there's a lot of policy decisions that need a thorough review and it's shitty of the government to exempt the stuff they decided from the review of the pandemic because that's the thing I think we need to actually learn the most about. The Did the government distribute vaccines pretty well once they actually had them? I'm sure you could dig around and find issues with it, but yeah, that part worked pretty well and the actual once you tried to act on the decision stuff generally was not nearly as big a problem as what the decisions were by the government. So this kind of feels like a we're trying to show we're accountable but not actually be accountable, and it's unfortunate that the NDP are deciding to go that way. The review itself is being led by three longtime former senior leaders of the BC Public Service, Bob DeFay, Dan Perrin, and Chris Trumpy. And you can respond to it until April 20th, whether you're an individual or an organization. We'll have the links in the show notes. I'm hopeful this isn't the last review. Often, it either takes significant public pressure or a change in government to lead to this. But we've seen recent polls where British Columbians still have the highest, give the government here the highest rating of any government in Canada, other than maybe... I think one of the Atlantic provinces in terms of response to the pandemic. So I'm really just goes I'm not optimistic. We're going to get a better review, but yeah, that, that just goes to show we how, at least learn something how from good this. the, once you lock in a good brand, how durable it can be. Cause the BC's doing better than the rest of Canada was only really true for the first couple of months. And there were definitely waves where we were seeing more infections and more deaths on a per capita basis than other parts of the country. And it wasn't even the, the case that we were necessarily more aggressive on pandemic stuff than, say, Doug Ford was in some areas. But yeah, the the perception got locked in early and did not change. And I don't know. It would be nice if we could actually do a proper look at that rather than the somewhat rose-colored glasses view that uh, a lot of people had towards the government actual decision-making and policies on this stuff. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.